So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Welcome, everybody, to this Thursday edition of Everyday Connection. I'm Rico Shields, and here to my left, Jean Victoria Norlock. How are you, Jean? I'm fantastic, Rick. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Good. We're, we're having good. thunderstorms, and but the Internet and lights and things are still on, so it's good. That's bonus. So good. Bonus. So I'm actually, uh, well, I have I have everything spread out, the Voice is going through the laptop that has a battery, and the control panel is up on the desktop that has a battery backup. So, you know. So no show crashing tonight. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. (laughs) We should have at least an hour if it, you know, warning. 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 Danger, Will Robinson. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) It shouldn't be bad. These are our little, what do they call them in the the technical term, I think, is splash and dash uh, thunder showers. They run up from the, it gets hot, the ocean's close by, thunderstorms. Uh, it's a pattern. We lost it last year. We had drought, but we're doing good so far this year. Well, last year was weird, you know. Mm-hmm. And, well, not that I can say that this year hasn't been weird. It's been very weird here. Like I said, it's been a year of weirdness here. <laughs> yeah, well, well, well I know. Yes, I know indeed. that up there in Montreal, y'all desperately need rain, right? Um, you know what? I <laughs> really, yeah, rain. Huh, about that. Actually, you know what we do? We have these amazing trees um, in the area in which I live. So it's I'm on the South Shore, so I'm not actually in Montreal. And these trees, they release um, for the month of June this fluffy white stuff that. <laughs> Floats everywhere, and I don't know if you you've ever seen fantasy movies where they have this beautiful metal scene, like meadow scene, and it's picturesque, and there's little white floaty stuff, and it's you know yeah right okay well that's what's going on right now over in where I live and but it's everywhere it's in the street it's between buildings it's on the highway it's insane apparently this stuff is super super flammable and it gathers on patios and decks and along the roadway and <laughs> well that's if you, convenient yeah it's, it's we do need the rain only to keep it dampened down because it's super dangerous it's insane I, the neighbors set um a little bit of it on fire just to show me and it just it woof, it goes up and it'll like it'll flash paper. Follow, yeah, it'll it'll just follow the line of however much of this fluffy stuff there is. And they say it goes on for about a month. So hopefully um, 
I can't believe I'm saying this. Oh, my goodness. But hopefully June will be fairly wet. There you go. <laughs> well, at least enough to keep it down. At least enough to keep yeah. it down. People are wetting down their patios. Um, friends of mine wet down their patio every morning when they they get up just to damp all this, this white fluffy stuff down. And uh, going for a walk to the store and going for the bike rides has been interesting because you get, you know, you worry about bike, uh, bugs in your teeth. Not so much. But um, white fluffy stuff can white go down your... White fluffy stuff up your nose and down your throat. And down your throat, in your lungs. Oh, yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> oh. Well, now, yeah. see here, I always thought that if I ever came to visit you in Montreal that I would come in, you know, June because it's warm, but uh, maybe yeah. July. No, I'd we'll, go for, we'll I'd go for <laughs> mid-June to, to early July because apparently that's when this stuff starts to go away. And it's I've never seen anything like it. And they're... They think it's perfectly normal. <laughs> yeah, well, in the spring around here, all of our cars turn yellow. Uh, same thing, trees, but it's yellow pollen that's just yeah. microscopically fine and uh, gives people tremendous allergies, I understand. I don't know. doesn't bother me. You know, that's I have really, to wash the car a lot. but That's the really exciting thing about this is that... Um, I used to have environmental allergies like crazy, but this stuff doesn't seem to be affecting me. So that's that's a happy, happy thing in and of itself. I'm not having any kind of allergy problems this year at all. So who knows? Maybe the white fluffy stuff is for you. It's a just good thing. summer snow. It is. It's really. It's some places you look, especially if there's been no rain for two days. It looks like there's piles of snow in parking lots. That's it's kind of fun. It's crazy. If it wasn't it's for the so fire crazy. thing, that's kind of fun. Yeah, it's really random. I've never seen anything like it. But, hey, you know, it's right. um, fun to watch. <laughs> Random's good. We like random around here. Random is good. Which would, that would cover the whole idea of how long we talk in the patience test at the beginning of the show. It's very it's random. random. Been short, been long. <laughs> Depends on how, mostly what the weather's doing, I think. <laughs> All right, folks. I know you've had enough of us. Um, evening, Cap. I see Captain Hawkeye in the uh, chat room. Um, we have with us an interesting gentleman that has done quite a lot uh, and uh, a tremendous amount when you uh, consider his earthly age. We we don't talk about that with like age, age, or wisdom, or maturity, or anything. But you know. Because maturity is that like growing up? Yeah. It, it, no, no, no. I got one more year. <laughs> I got one more year. They say if you make it to fifty without growing up, then it's optional. So I got one more year. Have you decided what you want to be it. when you grow up? I I saw something just the other day. I said I was gonna. I wanted to do that when I grew up. I don't remember, but I, I don't know. Since if I make it one more year, I'm not gonna grow up. So then that stuff's all out the window. <laughs> Why plan ahead? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's I'm going to be a lazy rich guy. Maybe is in the dream, you know, or whatever the going to be when I grow up. Uh, going to be a globe trotting filmmaker. That's just reality, you know. <laughs> See, it's all fun and games. Don't know the difference until you grow up. That's it. Don't do that. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it. Speaking um, of kids who haven't quite grown up. Ooh. That's tough. Yeah, that's right. We could slide them in there. Oh, okay. The I, children. Yes. Yes. No, our 
friends and fam over at Inner Child uh, sponsors. Uh, part of the backbone that keeps us going around here. Uh, I have links. Some the, that's the confusing part of doing this on two machines. Uh, I hoodwinked him, surprised him, shocked him. He has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But if you want to find out what Inner Child is up to, um, stop by them. Their uh, Inner Child hub, because they've got so much going on that they have to have a hub to direct you to their different websites. So the True. Inner Child hub is uh, com, And um, from there, you can get to their community. Uh, and you can get to their magazine. You can get to their publication website. Um, um, and who knows what else they're doing, but it's all there. That's right. If you're um, thinking about writing a book or you've got that book that's in your head and dying to get out onto paper or computer screen, they're a good group of folks to know over there at Inner Child Press. But, yeah, because they're authors as well. Yeah, so it's um, a very author-centric. Uh, it's very author-centered. Company. Well, it's... The whole organization is artist-centered, so anybody absolutely. who considers himself to be a creative being is it's a good place to stop by. Yeah, absolutely. Really? And uh, then we have our – should we do Should we do them all? We do one of these? Yeah, what absolutely. Are we doing? Okay, no. Okay, all right. Sponsors, here we go. So uh, our uh, sister and dear friend Inez Martins, uh, sponsor and supporter, and uh, keep us keep us alive. Is that a word? Uh, but she has done. Well, and you just have to watch the pronunciation. Otherwise, then it keeps us a liver, and, uh, and that doesn't make sense. Um, but Inez is, uh, well, she's a visionary life consultant, which means that she's a very talented Akashic Records reader and animal communicator. Because it's very interesting that um, she's got this unique gift to tap into the higher selves of not just yourself, but also your your pets. <laughs> so um, she can handle anything from why is my chihuahua neurotic to why is my husband neurotic. <laughs> right. All <laughs> the neurotics in her life, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, she can cover it turned all. Turned right into your nervous chihuahua. Oh, yes, she did, indeed. We've yeah, yeah. So you can find her at www.visionarylifeconsultant.com uh, that tells you about everything, or at www.inezmartins.com, which is her animal communicator site. Um, oh, see, we have new sponsor. Did I put their link in the links text thing? I did, I did, I did. Look at me, I'm a good little boy. He's so proud. So well, we, good we little have, boy, that would be Mama that calls you a good little boy, right? Yes, indeed. Mama Webb. Now, Mama Webb is just a sheltering hand and a loving arm um, with a whole lot of wisdom. Um, but what's unique, I think, about her is that she is not after giving you the answer. She's after encouraging you and inspiring you to find ways to find the answers on your own. Um, She'll hold your hand while you find the answer, but she won't find it for you. But she won't find it for you. Um, And she is a self-proclaimed spiritual orphan. So she understands that sense of 
I don't belong. <laughs> what is this society thing? It makes no sense to me. Um, that statement. How did I end up web. Yeah. on this planet? What, How did I, I get here? <laughs> took a wrong turn at Antares, I think. Um, LamaWeb.com is a, a good place to go if you're one of those wandering spirits who is lost in a state of confusion because what you see going on on the planet doesn't make sense. So, um, yeah, you'd be in good hands. That's it. MamaWeb.com. That's M-O-M-M-A and then W-E-B-B. It's web with two Bs. Because yes. Mama's always got extra. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> All right. Patience test passed, I would guess. Yes. Absolutely. So as we said earlier, we have an interesting guest with us tonight. Done quite a bit for his years. Silas Bernardoni. Yeah. How are you, Silas? Great. It's great to be on. Excellent. I'm so glad you could share some of your time with us tonight. I, no, imagine, I imagine you don't have a lot of it. Oh, <laughs> well, there's always time. I mean, talk about patience. I mean, I'm a farmer, so you just have to... There's only so much you can do every day, so you have to take time out. So, ah, uh, time out. We like time out. So you're a farmer, which leads me to my first question. Sure. Who the hell are you, and what do you do? Um, that's a tough question to answer, because uh, I, I I like to do many things, but uh, I'm a a co-operator of a family farm, our family farm, roller coaster farm in southwestern Wisconsin. Um, I also work as an operations consultant for small organizations um, that are looking to uh, transition out of the startup mentality to a more long-term, um, larger-picture operational strategies. So I kind of wear different hats um, when I'm here on the farm working and then also when I go out to work with various organizations uh, throughout the world. So does that answer your question? Well, that's who I am pers- uh, professionally. Personally, you know, who knows what I am. Depends on the day. <laughs> Ooh, I like that answer. I love honesty. Right off the yeah. top, eh? Hey, yeah. well, stand well, on your stand on your truth. It's all you got. Absolutely. Talk about like, what do you want to be when you grow up? When I was a kid, um, my teachers would always ask, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And you know, they're expecting firemen, you know, policemen, president of the United States, and I'd always say, "I just want to be happy." They say that that's that's not what we're looking for. And then finally, I came up with a, a smart ass answer, and I say, I want to be a philanthropist. Say so when I, when I, when I make all my money, then I'll grow up, and then I have to be responsible. So that's kind of the way. Like I said, you know, you have to wear all these different hats, but then you never really have to grow up if you just keep moving all the time. So that's it. Yeah, you fit right in around here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So my my normal question would be how long have you been doing what you're doing? But if you're um, you've grown up on the family farm, I imagine you've always been doing what you're doing. But can you explain a little bit about um, what roller coaster farm is? Uh, so roller coaster farm is a we're a non-certified organic farm um, because we do not prescribe to the label of or even aspire to attain organic status. Uh, we, we make our own um, standards and decide what we want to do for our animals. And we do grass-fed, grass-finished Scottish Highland um, cattle and Katahdin sheep. 
and we also do pasture pork with Tamworth hogs. So we do very specialized genetics in in uh, heritage breeds, so as ungenetically modified animals as we can find, and we do very specific, um, sustainable, all natural uh, method methodologies for raising the animals with a emphasis on um, humane treatment of the animals and uh, and just you know and, and really we try and produce products that are um, beneficial to our animals, our land, and our consumers is really our that that one phrase encapsulates how we operate our farm that you know we don't want to be mineral mining the soil we don't want to be um, mistreating our animals and we want to have our consumers be happy so if we put all that together then that's really what creates sustainable agriculture and uh, and that's why we're you know a multi-generational operation and that we're not just thinking you know what's going to happen in the next farm bill for um, you know corn subsidies or government subsidies we're thinking you know like what what can we do to make sure our soil quality out in our pastures is you know going to be better for my children when I do have them um and they grow up and they have to take over the farm so you know you're thinking 25 years out it's a very interesting operation and in looking at how do you uh move forward in in a way that's best for everyone involved so now, are you second generation or third generation how far back second. does Roller Coaster Farm go? Second generation. So, second when did your parents begin this, and what motivated them? I I imagine that when they started doing this, organic farming certainly wouldn't have been the most popular of ideas. No, that's actually a very interesting story. In that, my father grew up in the in northern um, the northern suburbs of Chicago, so in you know Batavia, Elgin area, and at that time it was right on the edge of the the city so you know he had in his backyard was a farm and so when he turned 18 he had to decide if he wanted to be a doctor or a farmer and he decided that if he became a doctor he could you know set up his farm and then it could turn it's much more likely to turn into a multi-generational thing uh, operation uh, but if he would have been a farmer he would have had to you know be a farmer his entire life and work day in day out and you know everything would have been he, he wouldn't have had as much um control over his destiny. So he became a farmer and worked like crazy um, to retire to be a farmer. Uh, so really it started out with my father being, just deciding that uh, he wanted to buy a farm. Once he, once he had kids, he always tells people that he bought his farm to teach his kids a good work ethic. Because being a doctor, he didn't have much time. So by the time I was 16, I was uh, the the farm manager and running the, the entire farm by myself, managing all my brothers and sisters to run it. So it's, it really turned into a, it, it's a kind of a joke that it's one big intellectual experiment, you know, because you have, you want to talk about genetics? Like, oh, we can talk about genetics. You want to talk about machinery or civil engineering or anything like that? I mean, everything goes into farming and you have to know just a little bit about everything to make it work. So it's kind of this big quest for, uh, for, I don't know, empowerment both food wise and in knowledge. So that's kind of how that's that's how it got started and now that we've um, my my father has retired from being a doctor and um and to transitioned into a full time farmer. Um all of us kids are um uh, graduating college and coming back to the farm after, you know, whether college or graduate school and uh now we're really starting to expand to build off of it and turn it in from a more of like a, a a lifestyle farm into a 
a large family farm is the the goal. So, there's well, in, interestingly enough, I don't think he's really retired um, from being a doctor because organic farming is, in a way, no, not in a way, it is affecting the health of the people who who buy your products. So he's still keeping people healthy. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you want to. It, it's really interesting talking to. I mean, working on a farm like this, and when we have people come visit, because um, we're we're very very big into um, transparency. You know, we always say if if you go to a farmers market, uh, you know, regularly, and you buy from the same person, and that, if you buy from them from that farmer three times, and they don't invite you to come to their farm, you should be thinking like you should, eh, something might be up there. So, anyone can come down. You just set up an appointment, and you know, come on down, and we'll show you around any day of the week. Um, but it's really interesting when people come in because, you know, we have doctors and lawyers and engineers and, you know, animal science people and all, all within our immediate family. And so we have so many different, we come at this, you know, we all grew up in the same place and then we go out in, you know, college in the world and then come back with very different perspectives. And then, but yet we're all can be on the same spot because it's the farm that ties the family together. So really when you come at it, you know, no matter who comes to the farm, somebody can, explain it to them in their own in their own language and their own thought processes no matter what their uh their uh occupation or background is so it's, it's a very interesting place to be in a very um exciting place to be just because i mean we're going through a lot of changes right now and it's it's fun to be where you know where the action is so it's good yeah, the dynamics in your family must just be insane. I can't even imagine a Sunday dinner with you. I imagine it would be fun, a whole lot of fun. Uh, oh, it's great. I mean, in I bet you the from, conversations are off the hook. Well, and that's that's what's really interesting because you know, I mean, I'm, I don't know how many brothers and sisters you have, but uh, you know, you all go away and you come back with different. You mean, you don't know everyone's different experiences and you know knowledge base. And so when you have conversations, you say, no, like, like, you know, I have to say quite often, you know, I'm an industrial engineer, you know, and this is what I do. You want me to, you want me to write out the numbers? I can, you know, show you the numbers to show you that I'm right. And also my mother is a lawyer. So you have a, you know, a trial <laughs> lawyer that, I mean, so you want to like present your case and you have to, you know, cite your sources is um, a commonly uttered phrase around here. So, you know, it's, it, but that it just kind of we feed off each other and push each other so that we make sure that um, we're using the you know most up to date research and uh, methodologies because if you want to do something you have to justify it to the rest of the family who you know aren't pushovers in any way so it's a very very interesting place to be. All right, that settles it. I'm not sending my daughter to college when she graduates high school. I'm just going to send her to live with you guys for a while. I'm pretty sure that'll have everything covered. <laughs> yes, yeah, between that, and Google will cover it. Oh yeah. Wow. No, but I, it, I can, I can relate to. My father was a, a double engineer, a petroleum and mechanical. He did one for bachelor and the other for masters, and was a executive at a corporation and. You know, his friends would come around and they're just having a, you know, just a chat, you know, nothing complicated or anything, you know, international gas policy and governmental regulation. And <laughs> it can be odd. It's, a, yep. it's an odd experience sometimes. That's what makes life interesting, though. So 
Absolutely. They're coming. That's why. That's why I view it. So. And uh, he was much the, much the same way with the. I used to wonder when I was a kid if maybe he was didn't know much, because he was always asking me to explain stuff to him. <laughs> but I get it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious. So, why organic farming? Is that um, partially because of your dad's background in medicine? Oh no! So what I said was is that we are non-certified organic, and we don't plan. We don't have any plans on being organic. Um, and so we. <clears throat> okay, but grass-fed. Um, now, okay, not organic, but grass-fed and grass-finished is insanely healthy way um, to raise cattle, and and the health benefits to well the animal and to the people eating the animal. I just can't be denied. So that I mean, the knowledge to want to do things that way had to come from somewhere. But it's uh, and so uh, let me tell you the the problem that we as a family and as an operation have with certified organic is you know fitting in with um, our our farm motto of you know producing products that are um, good for our animals, our land, and our consumers. It's the animal part, and that's. Being a systems engineer, I'll explain it to you from a systems perspective and that the um, certified organic program is a system. And when you try and bridge so many different types of products with one single system, you know, it's not a one size fits all. And so really when you have a, if you look at the, the physiology of the animals and how they process various things, um, you have to look at really what are the effects. And so when you have certified organic, there are a lot of horror stories. So certified organic does not mean that your animals, the animals that are producing those products are being humanely treated. Um, let me, I'll give you a quick story to back up what I'm saying. In that, uh, in that my, my sister was a um, animal science student. She has a degree in animal science. And so when she was in college, she was shattering a, veter a local veterinarian. And they went to a, an organic dairy farm. And uh, just to give you, so, and that this cow had a twisted stomach. So cows have four stomachs, and because it's so long and, you know, it's not a straight line that they get twisted, so none of the food can get through. So to do that, you have to cut them open, put your hands in there, and retwist it around, and then sew them back up. But because this was an organic dairy farm, the farmer had the vet cut open the cow, retwist, like, twist the stomach and sew it back up without any anesthesia. The reasoning is that if they would have given them even a local anesthesia, which physiology tells you will exit that cow's body in 18 hours, because of certified organic rules, he can't sell that he can't sell that cow's milk for 90 days. So he's out for three months of milk, and he has to support that cow. So when you have um, certified organic animal products, think of it this way: you have an entire toolbox of tools that you can use, but what you're going to do is that you're going to you're going to wait and wait and wait and you're going to wait for that cow to get sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker to help it. You have all the tools in your toolbox to do it, but you're not going to do it. You're not going to use them because basically the man says that you can't to, in order to get this little shiny sticker on your product. So what we do is we say, you know what? The reality is that that localized anesthetic is going to go out in 18 hours and it's not worth the extra money that we will get for our product to um, at, at the at the 
at market to treat the animal like that. So we do not want to be certified organic in that we never want to be, we want to be in the position that we can do what we think is right. And we have a, a loyal client base that will, that buys our products that trust us that we will do what is right and we will do what is healthy. We'll provide them with, um, with the best possible products. So that, does that kind of, that gives you an example. And that being said, I have nothing against organic farmers. I know many organic farmers, including dairy farmers, that are that treat their animals very humanely. Um, but really, it's that the, the true problem is that the people in today's society, in developed countries, are just too disconnected from their food sources. So what we really are, like I said, we have a very loyal um, customer base, which trusts us, and that's we have this transparency. You want to come by from us, come down to our farm. We'll show you how we do it. And they trust us. And that's why we don't have to be certified organic and we can make it work financially. And that we don't need someone else to, to rubber stamp us and give us that approval. We, we want to be that close to our customers so that we can have that rapport and that trust. So it's basically we don't need the certified organic. Um, we don't need the, the organic certification to to reach a, a competitive price for the quality of our product. So I, I hope that under, that explains it because it's a very unless you live in the live in the situation, it's hard to explain that we're not anti-organic. No, no, but, I I I think you've made a very uh, clear and important to me uh, point. Vitally any important. Any set of rules once the, once you set up some set of rules. People will figure out what is the exact minimum way that I can steer around to get that, and or how can I, you know, in today's society, like you said, you know, how can I, you know, get that sticker with or 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 take it to extremes and distort the, you know, okay, it's organic. I can't use any local anesthetic. Um, that's nutty. That's different than feeding an animal antibiotics just as part of its food. Because it gets fat faster, uh, yep. it, it's a big difference. And and like you said, you have a loyal customer base. Once upon a time, not to you know tell too big of a story, but once upon a time, great grandparents, that sort of thing, you bought beef from the guy on the one side of town, and your eggs came from the lady across the street, and you're you knew these people, so you didn't have to ask. How did they? You knew how they treated their animals because you could see. No, dude, it's not that long ago either that that's going on, and in rural communities, that's still how you do it. I mean, Absolutely. that's how I grew up. It's still how you do it, but it's, we went and got our eggs from so and so. We got our beef from so and so. We got our pork from so and so. We got our chickens from another place. They were it's all farm food, and you know, all we were getting everything fresh. Even our vegetables were coming from the local um, Mennonite market. So, and then look at you—you you moved to the city and you got sick. And I got sick as shit. <laughs> Not joking. As no, soon as really? I started buying grocery store food, and that's a scary, scary thing to consider. That in my youth, I had some health issues, but my mom was a three-pack-a-day smoke inside the house smoker. But you know, as far as body strength went, I was very strong, muscular-wise. But then I moved away and started buying food at grocery stores, and it didn't take me long before I started getting weaker. So there's something to it. 
you know, and Silas is right, you know where your food's coming from, and when you have respect for the way that that food is, is raised and cared for, um, I mean, it's, it's too bad that you're so far away, Silas, I would buy from you. Absolutely, well, without even thinking about it, after talking to you, I would buy for you from you. But let, let me give you let me give you some numbers. So the, the conversation that we've been having, and you know what it used to be and what it is today. Let me sh- let me give you a little bit of uh, put some numbers to that conversation. Yeah. So that the the number of, in the United States, being from the United States, sorry, I don't I don't have the numbers on Canada. I'm sorry. But, That's okay. Uh, I have to give in, you. <laughs> in the United States, the number of farms peaked in 1935 at 6.8 million farms. And there's only a population of 127 million people in the entire United States at that point. Now, we only have 2.1 million farms with 13, wait, sorry, 313 million people. So in, 19, in the 1930s, back when we hit the peak, um, a farmer could harvest 100 bushels of corn by hand in a nine-hour day. Today, the machines that, you know, the big combines that go out, they can ha- harvest 100 bushels of corn in seven minutes. So when it comes down to it, you look at this, that, you know, we have the United States is the most prodigious food producer in the world by population Um, because we have technology, we have a lot of land, we have very fertile land. Um, But when it comes down to it, technology and, quote, development has allowed us to, you know, produce so much food by a very small number of people that, I mean, people don't have to know where their food comes from. If that makes sense. I don't know. So those are a little bit of numbers that. Uh, well, and I, I think it's just it's it's just more part of the disconnect because really, the farmers not even these big commercial farms, the guys that run those combines and tractors, and uh, my brother-in-law had a family farm, lost it in uh, bankruptcy, but um, in Kansas and. Uh, I remember I, I went two summers to work there. My father said he was tired of watching me sit around all summer, and off to the farm I went. And uh, it, you knew the land. You had names for all the different parts of your farm, and they made sense. You made people could just, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd watch my brother-in-law First thing in the morning, sun barely coming up. He's driving around to figure out what, if if anything different needs to be done that day. And he's getting out and picking up a piece of dirt and sniffing it. And and he had a relationship with the land. He had a relationship with what he grew. And and then as time went on to try to keep up, he had to buy bigger and bigger machines. And pretty soon they had air conditioned closed cabins with little refrigerators in them and you didn't have to get out hardly, and you couldn't even smell the stuff you were harvesting hardly. It was ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's really interesting looking at um, looking at farming, the evolution of farming from from being on the inside, and that you know, and, and there's a lot of things that there's so many misconceptions and disconnects. And here's another great fact that people don't uh, realize: and you look at corporate farms. Right, that that term is just vilified. Um, the reality is that three, only three percent of farms are corporate farms, right? And ninety percent of corporate farms are family-owned. So, what's the difference between a corporate farm and a 
and a family farm, the reality is in 90% of the cases, it's nothing. It's just a legal registration for tax reasons. So you look at that, you know, it's, you know, I have very good friends who run in enormous, um, you know, they're running 10,000 acres just by their families because, you know, they have five brothers and they all want to stay in the business. So, you know, they only hire family. The only people that work for their, organization, their corporation is their family, but that's the way to go it. And that's why business, you know, and, and also at the same time, because they have that, that state, then they um, can hire the lawyers and things like that to just suck up all the, the government subsidies and things like that. So really looking at it from the inside, from a rural perspective and a rural culture perspective, the corporate farming isn't really well. Perhaps I should perhaps I should use the term uh, modern scientific farming. Uh, my my brother-in-law changed things uh, after his father passed away uh, in an auto accident because my brother-in-law went to college and studied ag and he came back and he started doing hybrid this and hybrid that and food supplement for the cows this and food supplement that all the latest stuff that he had learned you know in college in the i guess early 60s so 1950s tech um and so there was this uh as in anything ruled by a standard financial economy that we have on the planet today efficiency or, you know, bushels per acre, bushels per hour harvested, and that sort of thing, have become more important than the condition of the land, the, the condition of the animals, the, um, in, in many cases, or so it seems. I'm not oh, saying yeah. there aren't a lot of great, you know, farmers out there, but, um, you know, even, even standard crossbred, you know, somebody cross-pollinated and hybridized something it was to get more production or or weather change you know different climate um trying to push the soil the plants the animals to do things they don't naturally do well and, and the other thing to keep in mind is that uh when you push and push and push as you're saying you know you look at if you just do monoculture corn as an example, because that's big around where we are. Monoculture corn or soybeans, um, over and over and over again, you look at, you're, you're literally, min you're mining all the nutrients and minerals out of the soil. And so it's not sustainable. Um, you know, and what is pushing that, it's, it's the subsidies, you know, and, and the farm subsidies are incredibly complicated and they don't make sense. A lot of them don't make sense anymore. Uh, I can give you a wonderful example if you care, but um, they just don't make sense. But because the money's there, people will push and push and push, and they're not thinking to the next generation. So, like you said, you know, there's all these people coming in that are changing it. So it used to be, you know, all the scientific farming, um, and now it's gone into more just how do you cash in on the government subsidies. And the example I wanted to give was, if you look at the milk subsidies, do you know how milk subsidies are, are uh, in the United States are calculated? It is by it's the distance from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Eau Claire is a city in Wisconsin, and during the Great Depression, um, the South used to uh, have milk shortages because they didn't have uh, refrigerated transportation. So, the milk subsidy was one to two cents for every 100 miles away from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which was the center of milk production, um, to stimulate you know to, to uh, 
compensate for the transportation to get farmers in the south and you know as far away from Wisconsin producing as they can. That subsidy is still in effect today. So you know California has just eclipsed the United of Wisconsin in milk production wise because they get huge subsidies that farmers in Wisconsin can't get, all because of to compensate for lack of refrigerated transportation, which doesn't exist anymore, but because it's on the books and that's the way it is, and California and all the other farmers have such strong lobbies that they don't want to change it. So, I mean, you look at all these things and that you look at modern scientific, yeah, I mean, there was a basis for it, but modern scientific changes all the time. And once, you know, you get in these ruts when it's government subsidized, subsidies or um, genetics, you know, like people are people and they don't like change. So it's really hard to change these things as time goes on. And it creates this big mess of uh, things that you have to really dig in and try and pull apart to figure out what's going on and what is really right and what's wrong. So that's kind of, like I said, looking at it from the inside, it's way more complicated and there's oh, well, very hard to explain. That's, that's why I applaud people that stand on their truth and live their values today as opposed to just trying to fit what's the best combination. Uh, I know my brother-in-law did a little of that, and he, the little he did, he was a believer in. But he, he was paid to turn some fields back into natural pasture. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, but I but I remember his, you know, there was always, you know, we'd go one summer, we'd go visit when I was a kid. And his father was running the thing. We'd go up there and visit, and and the field on the left was wheat, and the field on the right was alfalfa. And you go back the next year, and they swapped around. Yep. Because that's what you do to let your land recover. And but that's not like you said, monoculture farming. Now they just keep growing the same thing every on every square inch that they can. Uh, the people that have the farm after my brother-in-law lost it. Uh, all the roads and pathways and things that were out there are all gone now. They just come in with these huge, big four-wheel articulated machines and plow the whole thing as if it was one field. It's like 1,600 acres. Yeah. Um, and so then you have to come back with chemical fertilizers because you're not letting the land recover, right? Yeah. yeah. And- it, it's like a... It's not so much that these people have evil intentions. It's just a, it's just a fact. It's a, and it's a dwindling spiral once you're in it. Once your land is sort of uh, worn out, you know, you you if you're going to make the bills that year, you're going to have to do it, right? Yep, and you work harder and harder and harder. And and really, the what really struck me, because um, as you said at the beginning of the show, you know, I'm I'm quite young. I'm only 27. Um, but to see that that progression, um, I, you kind of see it in fast motion when you go down to South America. I've spent a lot of time in Paraguay, and you look at a developing country, you know, and they're tra- they're the third largest Paraguay, which is you know not a very big country in South America. It's about the size of California with um, six million people. And they're the third largest producer of soy in the in the world now. Um, so it you look at this, you know. I'm, I go down there from the United States and I say, oh, I'm from a, on a farm. And they imagine these huge machines and on, 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 and say, no, you know, we, I can relate more to that subsistence farmer over there because in my opinion, he's doing it right compared to 
the guy on this side of the road that is doing monoculture soy, like, I don't agree with that. And I don't think it is, it's really, quote, development. Like, what is development? You know, is it raising corn and pumping high fructose corn syrup into everything? Is it processed food? You know, what, what is development? And they're losing all of these, uh, you know, the, the land base is going to large corporations, and they're just, like you said, they're taking out all these roads and fence lines and just plowing it in and pushing the people off the land because the dollars and cents, you know, the subsistence, subsistence farmer is not producing more than they need, which is not creating exports and on, on, on. And so, but in these developing countries, the, that change, the change that you were, um, that Rick was describing is happening at an alarming rate. Yeah. I mean, it is, we're talking, I mean, kilometers. You, you can sit, you go out into the Campo in Paraguay and, you know, from, you know, year to year, you can just see it, you know, it'll, the, the fields will jump kilometers. It, it's, it's just, um, it's very, very sad. And there's, I don't know a way to change it because, you know, well, technology it's, marches it, on. Yeah. It's gotta be, uh, it's gotta be individuals and, uh, uh, but it is. It's sad to see parts of the world where there's just this rapid unplug. But instead of the sad to see in Paraguay, you you mentioned, uh, we're going to take a break and uh, play, I suppose, Earth Prayer in light of how we've been talking for uh, the Earth. And um, then when we come back, I'd kind of like to talk about... Um, you know, you mentioned every, all the kids going off to college and all having their own experiences and then coming back, and it's almost like here's this brother or sister you've known all your life, but now you get to learn about them, which is uh, a wonderful experience. Um, I want to hear about some of the stuff you've done, like with the one laptop per child, and you know, and let's I touch know on more about Paraguay. Yeah. Huh? What the hell are you doing in Paraguay? <laughs> Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. So. Uh, um, because you're doing great things there on the farm, but you've been doing great things for years, my friend. And we're going to hear about them uh, when we come back. What is Ina V, our friend Ina V with Earth Prayer? Uh, I'll put her website up in the chat room. It's www.enavie.com. And uh, pop on over there and buy a copy of Earth Prayer. The proceeds go to support some great environmental uh programs and initiatives. Uh, anyway, this is Eno with Earth Prayer. We'll be back in about five minutes. Stay with us, folks.
Welcome back, folks. That was our friend, Ina V. Um, yeah, there you go. Keep that link handy. Pop the link in the chat room while we were uh, having the song from an uh, article in Scientific American. Um, Do plants think? And 
proceeds to make the scientific point that, well, they this guy has proven that they see, they they know whether you're wearing a blue shirt or a red shirt, and they know if it's you. And um, never thought when I was certainly when I was in high school in the seventies that just somebody would have said, oh yeah, plants think, plants at least see, hear, smell. Uh, in Scientific American, wow! I think it's I think it's a step that in the was, right direction. That was in Certainly. scientific fiction when I was a kid. Certainly, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. They, they've done a great deal of um, insightful research. Although, I do get on my soapbox about the uh, billions of dollars we waste on researching some ridiculously silly things. But they have done some very valid research. I remember listening to a show um, on CBC, one of my favorite stations, that was discussing um, having a conversation with a woman scientist who had uh, spent years studying fish and had discovered that they do indeed feel pain. And that not that they just feel it, but it actually affects them in that um, if they have a hook in their mouth, it will affect affect their eating habits. It will affect their um, their swimming patterns. And until the hook is gone or the wound is healed, um, so they actually have a reaction to pain. And I think that as our awareness grows, um, you know, it's it's going to have a massive impact on how people view things like. Um, sport fishing and even um, vegetarianism because one of the big things I often get is is harassed about the fact that I eat meat. Yes, I do. Um, My body needs it. I have tried to go the other route. I get very, very sick. Um, But on the spiritual angle of things, I really don't consider animals um, to be any less... um, of the spirit than plants. In in fact, um, I I know of some cows that feel a lot less powerful energetically than than the average oak tree. So, I think that I think that it's a personal thing and whatever feels right for you. But I I think that with this scientific these scientific studies, I think that um, judgment will become less and we will allow people to just do what's right for them and what's right for their body and what's right for their spirit instead well, of telling them what's what's right for there is a huge there is a significant I don't let me not say huge but there's a significant difference and here we go you know back on the grass fed grass finished beef but just briefly and then we'll get to the laptops but <laughs> um you can scientifically show that things like the balance of omega-3 versus omega-6 fatty acid is different in grass-fed, grass-finished beef than it is. Even if you grass-fed and then but corn-finish, um, uh, CLA, conjugated linoleic acid, is almost absent in corn-fed cattle, uh, but is in significant quantities in grass-fed, grass-finished Beef, and then there's the whole thing of how did the cow die? Oh, absolutely! And, and you I'm, can I'm, measure the adrenaline. You, you can measure the stress hormones in the beef. But it's even more than that, because if you look at <clears throat> so on our farm, we breed for um, temperament because it's shown that 
um, calmer cows, more docile cows, gain weight faster because they don't spend so much energy and calories being worried. I mean, cows can get, animals can get ulcers. They suffer from stress. They suffer from all the same things. They, they present different, um, you know, symptoms and you have to see it. But, uh, you know, we always say, you know, we want to keep our cows happy. Why? Because they're going to grow fastest and they're going to taste better. And so really, we, we, I mean, it goes beyond just how you feed them. You know, it's what you want to do. How do you create the right animal? And how do you, you know, breed stewardship? And that's why we do ungenetically modified. And that that those animals actually, I don't know whether it's, you know. The, the breeds that you have, uh, that you mentioned earlier, uh, just to try to make a comparison that people might be more familiar with, it, it's kind of like heirloom vegetables. Exactly. It's the exact same thing. And let me tell you, like, what some of the differences are. You look at Tamworth pigs, right? Um, our Tamworth pigs, you give them hay, and they make nests. They make nests so they can stay warm in the winter. That that trait has been bred out of production pigs now. Our pigs produce melanin in their skin so they can go outside and they don't get sunburned. So that's the one, number one reason why pigs roll in the mud so they don't get sunburned. It's it's natural um, sunscreen. You know, so our pigs don't have to do that, so they stay healthier. They don't have as many parasites. And they go on and on and on. But as you, you move to the more like um, industrialized agriculture, all those things change, and they, they do very specific breeding. Was we want a very um, broad animal that has um, that is not specific, but is very uh, very level in a, in a lot of different areas. And that's really in whether you it's like I, people ask me, how do you know what an animal, what, what animal is happy? And you say, and I always tell them, you say, well, really, you just look at their face. You look at their face, you know, and you're, you're a, a living being and they're a living being. And, you know, you can connect with them if you take the time and you look at that animal's face. Not, yes, we have a thousand cows out there, but that animal, is that animal happy? And you can see it because it's a human, it's, I mean, you're a human being, and but you can feel that connection. And, you know, it's a very spiritual thing when you, when you do it, when the way we do it, and you look at that and you make that connection with the animal and you make sure that it's happy. And that in the end, that produces better meat and it'll actually grow faster. So, and that's, that's not science. That's common sense. I think people would be surprised to know that cows, I remember this from when I dated a dairy farmer, have very unique personalities. Oh, yeah. They... I. I remember because you know we get up at five a.m. We go to the we go to the barn and and the guys would talk to the cows because some of them had you know their little quirks, personality quirks that this cow didn't like standing beside that cow and I mean it was it was unique to watch these guys having conversations with these animals that for the most part people consider to be dumb animals but they're not. There's a lot of intelligence in the eyes of a cow. If you take the time to look. No, and that's the thing. You go to, uh, you come to our farm and you go out and I talk all day. I talk to my dog because, I mean, she's a, she's another, an animal on the farm, but she's also a tool. I mean, every animal on our farm has a purpose. You know, I talk, to, if I'm not talking to my dog, I'm talking to the animals, you know, because, and, and they might not understand the words, but it's about the tone of voice. And as you're talking, you know, there's so much into communication as far as, uh, um, you know, body, your posture, your movements, you know, and if you stay relaxed, you know, then they stay relaxed. And if you just, and as a human being, you just talk to them about what you're doing and it, it really helps and, it, and they are happier and everyone is happier and everyone, 
grows and makes money. So, I mean, from a production standpoint, it's great. And also, it's a lot easier to sleep at night when you know your cows are sleeping happily in the barn. So, I don't well, know. Well, it, it, to me, that's the, you know, as I said, it's that lost relationship. Uh, even when my brother-in-law was using, you know, liquid liquid anhydrous ammonia and, and other things, um, he still had a relationship with the dirt and the plants and the, you know, like I said, he got up in the morning and sort of went out and talked to the plants. I mean, he just went out and looked at the fields and stood there and just looked at them and maybe sniffed, some, broke some something off and sniffed it, picked up dirt, sniffed it. Um, and that relationship then used to be in the community setting. That relationship was passed on because you knew who you got your food from. So you had a relationship with them. They had a relationship with the land. It was still, you know, we don't have to necessarily go back and live, live in teepees and all grow our own food. But, you know, you round up some inner city four-year-olds and ask them where food comes from. It comes from Walmart. And chicken no. McNuggets are not chicken. I'm no. sorry. Like you look at what, what does a chicken taste like? It does not taste like a chicken McNugget. And also, beef does not taste like a hamburger from uh, McDonald's. What you no. taste is fat and grease and chemicals. Yeah. So, and that's that's really the problem. I we view our our family, our operation views my generation. It's a lost generation as far as food goes because yeah. you know they view like and if you look, we we take our animals to taste testers, right? What we get invited to taste testing that you know fancy country clubs and things like that. And there's a direct correlation between how high our, our our products are rated and the age of the person that's doing the testing. The older the person, the more they like our meat. Right. Because, you know, the the saying that, like, the taste is in the gristle, that's just horrible. I mean, it's, it's the most disgusting thing. Yeah, and so – and um, a couple of weeks ago, I was we had a bunch of graduate students from the university come down um, a friend, they, a friend brought his entire lab down to the farm, and we served them brats. And our family was kind of um, embarrassed because we we're like, "We're really sorry; these brats are really, you know, they're a little bit greasy." And what happened was, is actually all these people they bought every brat that we had on the farm because they were so lean. They were so low fat, yeah. Yeah, they're like, "These are great; these are such lean brats." And say, "Oh, well, okay, well, we we're kind of embarrassed." We thought they were a little greasy. <laughs> yeah, they're too fatty for us. Like we just you know, we don't really eat that much of them because they just. Eh. But yeah, it's it's the, well, it's and the I've, generational transfer. I know, uh, you know, some late twenties, early thirties folks that if you get them some grass fed, grass finished beef, they think it tastes gamey or something. They because it, it to me, corn fed beef's a little bland, <laughs> and certainly yeah. whatever this stuff they're they're selling in so many places now is. Is uh, there's an organic grass-fed, grass-finished fast food place around the corner from my house. Lucky really? in that, yeah, lucky in that. And uh, and I'll take people there for burgers, and they're kind of like, eh. They, they look at me funny, like when I go to some places that have bison burgers around here. Yep. They're like, eh, it's got a weird flavor, a weird taste. Yeah, it tastes like meat. You exactly. No, no pink slime here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that's one thing that I've really learned from going around the world and um, 
you know, growing up producing um, food products is that, you know, the, the variety out there is huge. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a grayscale as far as uh, producers go um, from subsistence farmers to confinement, you know, factory farms on, on the other side. And the reality is that everyone has to, you have to be empowered consumers and you have to just define where you, your tastes and your morals, your, you know, edible moral compass points on that grayscale. And that's where you need to go. And so, that's, I mean, it comes down to the consumer. It's not going to happen from the farmer's standpoint. It's going to be, you know, if, if McDonald's is the largest, McDonald's is the largest buyer of potatoes, as an example. So they have huge power. Why do they have that power? Because the consumers give them that power. So it's going to come down to the consumer. And if the consumer doesn't change, it's going to be very slow and it's a losing battle. Bravo. So, yeah. Bravo, sir. It. We like to say around here, you make a vote with every dollar you spend on how you want your tomorrow to be. Yep. You, and don't think that the businesses and the corporations are not watching because they are. So is the government. They've actually initiated changes already because they're seeing a shift in the way people are spending their money. And some major corporations have started to rethink their strategies. So the power is in your dollar. Spend it wisely and spend it with the idea in mind of what kind of future you want for you, your children, your grandchildren. You know, that's always think ahead. Well, and also don't, it's, when it comes to food, I mean, you could spend an entire, you could make it a full-time job just researching what you eat. But I mean, there are ways to speed that up, such as, uh, um, you know, food collectives. Um, you can research the grocery stores that you shop at you know, what are, what are the, where are you buying your food from? It might, I mean, it's very hard to buy all of your food directly from the farmer. But if you know, like, this is the, where's the, like I said, the, the, your moral compass as far as what you put in your mouth, every business, every rest, whether the restaurant, um, farmer's market or, uh, or grocery store, they all have set those guidelines. So if you just research all of those, then you can you have your go-to places, and you can get a very wide variety of food with within your your boundaries, if that makes sense. So, I mean, just be smart consumers, and just think about not only what you're buying, but where you're buying it from, and how does your morals match up with that? That's the truth. That's the key to being a good consumer, as far as food goes. Yeah, it's just bringing yourself into alignment, all of the areas of your life into alignment. Uh, well, and everything will go up. I mean, your food is fuel for your body. And if you put in, I mean, garbage in is garbage out. And if you, if you eat crap food, you're going to feel like crap. That's the way it goes. Because yeah. you yeah. are what you eat. You are what you eat. There's curious. no I know it's not. I know it's not about Paraguay, and I know we're getting tight on food but or on time, but I'm curious to know, um, you grew up with this food, so how healthy are you? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. My girlfriend's a nutritionist, and everyone asks me, like, well, well, how hard is a day nutritionist say, oh, it's easy because I eat better than she does. <laughs> and so really, um, it's, uh, let's put it this way. I can, I can eat, I, I mean, I might eat at McDonald's once a year, and, but my, my system can handle it. I will not become violently ill eating McDonald's. I don't like to do it because it doesn't make me feel good, but I can do it. Um, and I'd say, you know, it, it depends on, 
depends on the situation that I'm in. You know, if I'm in the United States, um, in my, you know, within my comfort zone, I have, even if I'm not on my farm, which we produce the majority of our far, our food for our family on the farm. Um, we have huge gardens that we don't, we only sell meat, but we raise uh, a huge variety of vegetables and things for personal use. So I have extreme control here. But when I'm, say, in, you know, if I'm traveling, I mean, trying to find good food in an airport is very difficult. <laughs> very, very difficult. Ain't that the truth, brother? Oh, my goodness. This kind of, you, take it with you or eat before you yeah. go. If, well, if, if you're ever in an airport and there's a juice bar, buy three of whatever they got and just give the other two away because we got to support that stuff. Because it is, it's, I grew up here in Houston and it, it just got, that's what I loved about traveling was you got to go places where you met the people that ran the place where you ate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing, you know, um, like I said, and you go around the world and that's, one thing that I decided when I moved to Paraguay was I was going to, um, I was going to eat street food. You know, I mean, yes, I will get uh, food poisoning regularly, but it's worth it. You know, because it's part of the the experience. When you're experiencing a place, food is a huge part of what a society and a people are. Um, and you know, a little food poisoning will make your experience go a long way. And you know, it's not worth you know living in a in a vacuum sealed bag trying to protect yourself from something like that. So I think it, it as to answer your question, it, it all depends on where I'm at and what situation I'm in. So it might be, I mean, when you're in, when you're in an airport, like sometimes it's really, like I said, I go to McDonald's once, maybe once a year. And it's that, you know, in an airport, you're just, you know, flying through on a connection. You just got to get something to put in your body so you don't pass out from hunger and McDonald's is the easiest thing. It'll, so, I mean, it will do. It, it'll do it, and it keeps you alive. Yeah, and you know, you can almost think of it like a survival situation. You know, go through somebody's survival school. You may have to eat caterpillars or worms or something. You know, having to eat McDonald's once a year is kind of like that. But yeah, um, and everything everything is good in moderation, including moderation. Yeah. If you ever heard that saying, but. You know, so sometimes you got to eat the crap just, you know, because everything's yeah. moderation. Well, and it's... Absolutely. I agree with that. I, I don't I don't uh, encourage anyone to make a list of foods that are bad or a list of things to avoid or a list of things to hate. Just find the things that are good. And... um, But so many of these problems, like you said, get solved when people know where the food comes from. Well, pig and, slime is a wonderful example of that. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Um, when you don't think about what you put in your mouth, you're going to put things in your mouth like pink slime. I mean, like, uh, I mean, that's why I said, like, uh, chicken McNuggets or chicken nuggets in general are not chicken because there's things like pink slime in there that you don't know about. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I always ask people, what chicken nugget? What part of the chicken is that? I've seen a chicken. Legs, breasts, wings. I've seen all that. What's nugget? The only thing I know shaped like that's well, we don't want to go there on the air, but um you know You can deep fry anything and it tastes great, right? Right. So, right. But yeah. I, I worked in restaurants in college and uh, yeah, it's amazing. You you People, you're in a place where there's pedestrians or, or traffic and you want to draw them in, and you throw some of your food up on the grill and cook it, they don't come in. 
just throw slices, big old fat slices of onion up there and just let them turn black. Everybody and their brother's like, what is that? It smells divine. Yep. Well, they do that kind of stuff. Um, was it the McDonald, the supersized guy, uh, Morgan Spurlock? Mm-hmm. His girlfriend was vegetarian, vegan even, I think. But while he was doing this supersize me thing, she would go with him, and she said, I was shocked at how appetizing it smelled in there. And calculated. Very calculated. Add stuff to fryers just for the smell. Um, you know, I mean, yes. you, you, people think, oh, well, that's crazy. Well, I... I was the manager of a restaurant at the end of my college career, and uh, I used to get this trade magazine, and it used to have stuff about, you know, if you add this to your oil, you can use the oil for four more days. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always like, you know, when you've used the oil enough, it's used up. What do you what are you putting in there? That's this tiny little bottle that you're going to put in there to make this big fryer last extra days. Well, uh, and that's that's why I said it's it's scary going down to my time in Paraguay, um, you know, spending a couple of years there and really getting to know the place and looking at like, is that little bottle that you're talking about is that really development? I don't think so. I I don't think so either. I mean, but you look at what does humanity think? And you take a global perspective on these things, and you know, they, some people do think that's development and. So when I'm working down there, let's you know, I know you want to transition over to the Paraguay topic. Um, and I, so a good transition to that is people, when I was working down there, I was working for an organization, Paraguay Duca. I was the only American that worked in the organization. And uh, it would come down to, we'd be sitting in meetings and people would say, a lot of them had gone to school in the United States. But, um, and they would say, you know, well, this is how they do it in the United States. And I'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, Yes, that's how we do it, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. You know, you, yes, we are developed, but you, know, you have to take it and look at all of the good. What you look at the United States, what's the good and the bad, and you have to be, you have to aspire to be better than the United States. So, just because that you know that bottle comes from the United States and was developed there, doesn't mean that it's good. You have to sit down and decide for yourself how does this little bottle fit into Paraguay's definition and vision of what development is. How does this fit into here? Because we're not in the United States. So, and it really came down to a lot of people would kind of look at me weird until they realize that I'm not anti-American. I'm advocating as an operational consultant. I'm advocating for them to open their minds and to make their own decisions. And you can't don't want to be a lemming. You don't want to contribute to these things, you know, to various um, problems. And they don't want to import problems. You need to be thinking about it for themselves. And so. But you would give that same, as a consultant, you'd give that same advice to a startup in the United States, wouldn't you? Oh, exactly. I mean, the, the global economy is there, and it's also turned into a global society. Um, you know, I lived for two years in Paraguay, and the music never changed on the radio, you know? So it's, it's things like that. But uh, And so, you know, whether it's you know, your music preferences, which are becoming, I should say, in the you know Western um Western world is, you know, largely becoming homogenized to, you know, the soft power of the United States, but really it's soft power of the United States. And is that something that these countries want to be importing and giving that power to the United States, if that makes sense? Right. Well, that's the, that's the rub, isn't it? Surrendering your power. 
<clears throat> so, yeah. and that's that's the, the looking at the operations thing. Um, and, and I should tell you the going to you know I have a undergraduate and I went to graduate school for industrial and systems engineering. Um, and the the core principles that we use on our farm as far as how we develop our operations and you know you know creating a sustainable operation, the principles are generally the same whether you transfer that to a organization in um, Paraguay that's deploying low-cost laptops or, you know, my friend's triathlon business and he wants to develop a franchise model on that. Like the the systemized, the systems approach to these things are quite the same. Um, they're vastly different operations that we're working on and under extremely different circumstances. But how you how you sift through what people do and, you know, how do you generate value, um, how do you maximize value to your uh, your consumers? Who are you consumers? How do you manage? Like, what are your risks? How do you manage your risks? All these things go together. Um, and like you said, it's I would say the same. I talk about consumers here, and you talk about consumers there because whether you're a business or whether you're putting food in your mouth, you're our consumer. And so you have to figure out what is best for for everyone in that whole chain. So that's how you know my. My life kind of seems scattered as far as what I've done professionally and personally. But from my perspective and from my system's perspective, it kind of all fits together quite well. No, I, I think so, too. And, and I don't want to give the impression, it, it, you know, at least me personally, that I'm anti-technology or anti-progress. There are great things that technology does and has done and continues to do and will continue to do, I'm sure. But there has to be some, I think, yeah, I think that this, this whole thing is that this relationship disconnect is the only way that it can happen. It's when a business can sit down, management of a business can sit down and look at dollars <clears throat> and not see cows and grass and and uh, once once you make that disconnect the pink slime is almost inevitable because well, and, it, it recovers money and, and here's another interesting look at it you look at the pink what is the pink slime transferred to other industries um, look at education uh, so it, it I have a lot of experience in you know working on educational projects in Paraguay. Um, the average Paraguayan student goes to only school for half a day, so they're really only in school for three hours um, in the classroom for about three hours per day. Um, in order to bring up their education to an international standard, they have to have a full day, a full day at school. I mean, it's, it's that simple. So in order to do that, they have to double the number of teachers in their country. That is a 25-year project minimum. So how do you double the number of teachers in your project, in, in your country? That's a generational change. So how does a country like that, like Paraguay, transition that quickly? Because they can't wait for a generation. Um, they have one of the uh, the highest percentages of young popu of you know younger population, and I think they do have they have that one of the lowest average ages in in South America. And so if they wait for just five ten years, they're going to have a huge population that's unemployable essentially, in, in a modern world. So what is the solution? Um, the solution that, that they've come up with and that I've helped to um, deploy and implement is technology, because technology can fill that, that, that gap. 
and the way that they do that, the way technology does that is it, it takes away the emphasis on the teacher because as a, looking at a, a student as a consumer in a t- traditional um, educational environment, even in the United States, the teacher owns the information and they tell you what to learn, how to learn it, and when to learn it by. They say, this is science. Here's a worksheet. Your test is on Friday. On the, hmm. these, these chapters. The answers are in the back, but don't look. <laughs> yeah, don't look. Exactly. Book so, test. so what uh, what we've been doing in Paraguay is you give them, you give these kids a, um, you know, it, it started out as a $100 laptop. Now it, it changes quite a bit. I think now it's at like $190 per, per laptop. But what you do is you take, you take that power of owning all of the information away from the teacher and you, the, the teacher becomes a facilitator and the knowledge is provided to the students through the computer and through the internet. So, and that kid takes that computer home with them. So they have that computer, which is really their source of knowledge with them 24 hours a day. So you're putting the power of the, of the knowledge back into the hands of the student, which is how it should have been bloody well done all, all along. But here's, this is the catch though. So the way I got into this project is I, um, is I started doing undergraduate research in Wisconsin because the chancellor of the University of Madison saw a special. He got 10 free computers, and they, I always say that they did the, these 10 computers did the plinko through the entire from the chancellor all the way down through the entire university system to me to run a uh, uh, undergraduate research project to test these out at an after-school program. And what I found was that um, that the, the students needed structure. And there was a fundamental disconnect. These computers were developed for elementary school students in developing countries. We were trying to implement them, and in schools in developing countries, to be more specific. We were trying to implement them in a developed country in an after-school program. The problem is that you look at how ingrained technology is in the culture, and that from essentially from birth, American kids use technology. But to me, my computer is a tool. It's a work tool. I mean, we're talking using technology. It's a way to, you know, communicate, you know, type, all these other things. But to a kid, when they first start using technology, it's entertainment. I mean, it might be for good parents. They might have educational games. But still, the primary thing is it's entertainment. So the problem that we ran into in the United States and in Wisconsin was that these kids kept saying, Show me another game. Show me another game. Because they equated, they would go home and they'd play Nintendo. So what's the difference between an Xbox and a computer? What's the difference between a computer and a cell phone? Those, all of those, the, those different, the, I mean, to us, I can differentiate. Well, yeah, they serve vastly different purposes. But to a kid, they're all the same. Toys. Exactly. Well, I think then it, it comes down to instilling in um, younger people a desire to self-educate. And I think that, you know, they they take this tool home and they want to play with it, and that's because they've been raised in this education environment where they are given a workbook. The answers are in the back. They're not allowed to look. Um, They have to sit through some very boring material for long hours during the day. They're not supposed to talk, even though they're supposed to be in a social environment. They're educated on their date of manufacture, which is absolutely ludicrous. Every student goes to school at the same time. And some some kids, and even adults, let's face it, 
they peak at different hours. So, you know, I'm a night person, Rick's a night person, you might be a day person, but we don't educate our students that way. So they have come to equate education with something that's uncomfortable and forced. So if we can take that energy out of it and make it, again, you know, a tool to empower them and and something that they're hungry for. Once they find the joy of discovery... And that is, to me, where we can be of the biggest help. Every time, again, thought my father was an idiot because every time I wanted to was curious about something as a kid, he would put down what he was doing. He would get up, and he would go, I don't know, let's see. And he would go, and he'd find the encyclopedia. And, you know, if it was today, I'm sure we would sit down at his computer and get on Google, whatever. It, But it was never just tell me. And it was never, what the hell do you want to know that for? <laughs> and so I don't want to completely condemn the education system. It's kind of fulfilling the role that it's got consumers too, you know, voters, taxpayers. If you want to Absolutely. change it, you can you can change it. But there is a responsibility. It does need to progress. Hooks back into the hooks back into the farm. If you're trying to if you want to pass this down to your children and your grandchildren, then it makes a difference what you do to the soil today. Yep. And, well, and also, education just isn't about information. It's about it's about culture, and it's about teaching kids how to fit into society. And so one thing that, coming from an engineering background, this is something that's very, it takes people, um, when I when I work um, as a consultant, people want to like, so you're an educational, you're an engineer that works in education and say, no, no, I'm a systems engineer that works the systems consulting for education projects. Um, and I always say that, you know, teachers have this tendency to go, you know, these very altruistic route and say, you know, every student is a flower and, you know, as a teacher, I'm a gardener and I want all of my flowers to grow. And I want them to be every kid to be beautiful because every flower is unique. The reality is that if you have a garden and you never weed your garden, it's going to turn into weeds and you're not going to get anything. So there has to be pruning. You have to there has to be design. You have to have a strategy when you're when you're gardening to make to get the maximum out of that garden. And so and that's that's the system. So if you take this a too altruistic approach to education and say you know we want to do all these things. Yes, but how well do they fit into society? Well, uh, and, that's the, the end goal. I'm not saying that. And shouldn't we maybe have different different kinds of schools? Just like in your home garden, acid loving plants might be on one end, while alkaline loving plants are on the other end. So, so they get kind of grouped together. So exactly. instead of it's, it's taking an artistically talented child and forcing them into math and science because we need more engineers. Well, or, and that's the. But you know, the thing is. Um, but it, it's not crazy. I, I'm not art, picking but, on. I'm not picking on engineers. My dad's an engineer, and I love him dearly. Uh, yeah. But it, that goes. You know, it, it's all over the papers. There's a shortage of nurses in ten years. Okay, everybody wants to go to nursing school now. Um, not because they want to be a nurse, but because they want to be guaranteed employment. They want and that's to pay where their the education student loans system and, falls short. And it's not. It's not just the education system. It's a societal problem. And it has to, I, I 
believe that it has to start at home. I mean, you can complain about the government and the education system all you want, but if you're not the type of parent who's going to encourage your child to be true to who they are and to embrace those things that make them an individual, then you're playing into, you know, that that negative idea of everybody's got to do what's best for, you know, the economy. Well, it, it, it doesn't work anymore. No, it doesn't. And and like I said, like I have this very unique perspective in going from, you know, working in on American education projects and, and American uh, organizations and then bouncing to Paraguay and seeing the developed country, um, developing country comparison. And, and what people don't realize is you're the number, if you look at a one laptop or child project in Paraguay, the number one challenge in the first year of the project is convincing that kid that they are that they are worthy of owning that computer. But they don't think that they're worth it to own that computer. And so it's not just say that, oh, yeah, you get the computer, give the kid the computer, and, you know, they just take off. Yeah, this is one of the home big, they go. Yeah, and this is like one of the um, – you look at the OLPC, because OLPC is a global organization that doesn't – that has no real role in implementation. They provide support for all the implementations around the world. And uh, – you get these disconnects. Um, when I was working down there, there was a huge uproar in the in the you know, on the internet and things because Nicholas Negroponte, the founder of OLPC, he made a statement about how the new XO, the next version XO, they're going to go to Peru and throw them out of helicopters, and then wait for a year and then go back and see what happened because the user interface is so easy. But they're just going to throw them out of helicopters and go back. And then he ended the interview by saying, you know, and if some kid's older brother uses it to look at pornography, that's the real world. The problem is, by that using that statement, he gave every politician in the world justification to cut funding for every implementing NGO in the world. Yep. He's trying to sell his product, but there's this, you know, so everyone always says for the One Math Hour Child Project, it's not a computer project. It's about the kids. It's about education. But from all from OLPC sitting in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to a kid in developing country, there are a thousand people that has to, that that shame that to get that computer from one side to the next. There's a thousand people, and you have to look at that entire customer chain to make it work. And statements like, <coughs> excuse me, like uh, Nicholas made in, in you know throwing them out of helicopters, is that really productive? You know, he, he, yes, he's going towards his own sales pitch, but it's not helping us in the developing country. And that's really why I chose to go work in Paraguay, to see it on the ground where the rubber meets the road and really see what it takes to go in there. And looking at it from a socio-technical um, perspective, really how do you implement these computers in a developing country? So how do you take, you know, any school and turn it into a digital classroom? That's a huge jump. And so how do we do that? What does it take to do that, and what is the the, the best case methodology? Yeah, you can't you can't do you can't accomplish that by throwing <clears throat> laptops out of a helicopter, particularly no, in a part of the world where the kids don't feel worthy of having them anyway. What they probably leave them out there to rot. Well, and th- this is the thing, you know. You look at uh, I was explaining to my girlfriend, I have a, a Paraguayan girlfriend. I was explaining to her today that. Uh, you know, yes, we have 4G in the United States, but if you look at 3G coverage, Paraguay has better 3G coverage than than Wisconsin does. I mean, there I can't. There are places on my farm I can't get 3G, let alone 4G. 
you know? So you look at it, um, this is something you look in Paraguay. Clean drinking water is a problem. Access to the internet is not at all. You can have access to the internet anywhere in the country if you just have a 3G modem stick. But clean water is a totally different situation. So you look at the Peace Corps volunteers, all of them have super fast internet, but they all drink out of like wells with a bucket that they, that they have to crank up. So you really like, again, what is development and what's going forward and what are the real priorities of these uh, of, uh, countries going forward? And, and I, again, I love Paraguayan society. You know, it's my second home. Um, but coming from a different perspective and looking at it from a development, you know, working on a development project, like how do we, and this is the other thing, the solutions aren't going to come from me. They have to come from within the country. Um, they have to come from um, people who are, are born as part of the system and, and the, the solutions need to come from inside rather than outside. And, and if there's an idea that comes from outside, it needs to be translated culturally to create the maximum probability of success within that society. So that's really how the, the, what I, I spent the last two years um, advocating for is for Paraguayans um, to not listen too much to outside people. And yes, you can take those ideas, but you have to run them through your cultural translator, which is your organization that then eventually implements them. And then you have to learn from your own uh, experiences to create your unique, the, the uniquely Paraguayan methodologies. And, and the, end, the end product of that is that Paraguay is the highest quality one laptop per child deployment in the world. It's the smallest. It has 10,000 computers. You look at Uruguay, and they have 400,000 computers. Yet, if you're a tenured professor at MIT and you want to study XO, the, the educational aspect of it, you go to Paraguay instead. So it's it's very interesting looking at from a systems uh, systems perspective, really how it all fits together. So, I honestly can't think of a better way to end a show. Um, sadly, we're going over Overtime. time, um, but. That's why we plan it that way. We always yeah. have a we always have some cushion at the end because uh, it is the answers are not really to any development. The universal answer is that the answer isn't universal. And the United States is still developing, so everyone has to like you have to be an active citizen and you have to think about everything from the way you learn to what you put in your mouth because changes happen every day and we just make sure we're going in the right direction. That's it. Brilliant. So, how do they? Um, how do they? Yeah, did we have a uh, roller coaster uh, website or? Like to find the farm and the one laptop dot org. Yeah, one laptop per child is laptop dot org. Um, Paraguay Duca is Paraguay dot org. Um, if you'd like to come visit us at Roller Coaster Farm, um, we actually do not have a website because we can't. Well, we haven't been able to justify putting the time into it because we've never had problems with sales. So, um, but if you're interested in information, uh, we look at ourselves as consumer advocates. You can email us at rollercoasterfarm at gmail.com, or you can also find us on eatwild.com. Um, go to eatwild, just type in Roller Coaster Farm, and you can find us. So, Yeah, I I find that to be probably the fastest, easiest way to that I've found you guys. I can just put in Roller Coaster Farm and Eat Wild pops right up. Uh, now, the Paraguayan website, can you spell that one out for us and for our listeners? Paraguay Duca is P-A-R-A-G-U-A-Y-E-D-U-C-A. And is that a .com or .org? Or? .org. Okay. Awesome. They've had, they, I, I, uh, 
I, um, my last contract with the organization ended in February. And as I was going out, they were, they were planning on rehauling their website. So hopefully they, they either finish that or they finish it quickly. But, uh, if you just Google Paraguay Educa, there is a lot of, of uh, media coverage and, uh, they're all over the internet and it's a digital project. So there's more than enough, even if the website doesn't come up, there's more than enough to read about them. Beautiful. So. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, this has been an eye opening. Yeah. We may have to have you back. Eye opening conversation. Talk Absolutely. about some more of it. We, you certainly have more than 90 minutes worth of, uh, information and wisdom and, and, uh, but local answers to local problems is a, is a great way to leave off because, yeah, and know your farmer. Yeah. Know your farmer, know your food. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Carrots don't come from the produce section at Walmart. <laughs> it's not. Mm-mm. Um, all right, folks, we have Inez Martins next Tuesday answering your questions, uh, and she's answered them on a broad range. I can't think of one we can't, you know. So call in with your questions next Tuesday. Have a wonderful weekend. And uh, until then. Stay connected. Night, y'all. Night-night. Join Rick and Jean again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and be sure to like their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection. Worried you might miss an episode? Don't worry. Subscribe. Find us on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee. You can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.